1: Hello and welcome to the Llama Podcast. I'm Peter Bowes, and Llama, Live Long and Master Aging is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, today it's not so much science, but a remarkable story, a lifetime story. I'm in Newport Beach in California, a seaside town just to the south of Los Angeles where I've come to see Edith Avis. Now, Edith is 100 years old. We met actually in episode two of this podcast when we were introduced by Olga Connolly, a personal trainer, herself a remarkable individual, 84 years old. She's been working with Edith on her mobility and fitness and Edith and I had a brief chat on that occasion. Edith kindly agreed to come back and to sit down with me again for a much longer conversation about her life. Edith, it's great to see you again.
0: Nice to be here.
1: Let's just start by talking about where we are right now. We're sitting in the library of the home that you moved into just under six months ago.
0: Five months ago, yep. What's it like here? Uh, It's a completely new experience for me, and I'm having a hard time to adjust. But everybody says the same thing. You have to be here a while, and you have to go with the flow and take what comes. Mostly it's a nice, comfortable place to live, and people keep telling me i should be so happy i don't have to cook my meals anymore i don't have to wash my clothes anymore and those are things that i didn't dislike but of course i have freedom now to do other things so i'm going to i've been doing some more physical therapy to protect my balance because my balance has been poor for some time
1: and this is assisted living is that the correct definition?
0: Assisted living, yes. And there are various degrees of assisted living you can get for the cost. The cost goes up if you get more care. But if you have someone full-time to be with you and take care of you all the time, it gets pretty expensive. But I'm still able to do my own bathing and my own um, washing my socks and stuff like that if I need to. And I have made my own breakfast this morning So I'm pretty well self-contained. The only thing that I'm lacking that I did enjoy was driving my car, but that's pretty much
1: out now. When did you stop driving?
0: About two summers ago. I was in Upper Michigan then, and I was still using my car, and it was so handy. The uh, drugstores and the grocery stores were a mile away, and Hospital was right on the lake where I lived, and it was very comfortable. I could go when I wanted to, and but my son told me that he didn't want to ride with me, so I'd quit. I'd still be driving if I were at home and living on my own, because I shouldn't brag about this, but I have a perfect driving record, not a ticket, not a uh, not, I never got arrested for anything. I drove 4-H kids all over the country on theirs. When I was working, I, I had to drive everywhere I went. So I have such a wonderful record, but it's just thrown in the waste basket now, and I'm, I'm a bad driver, according to everybody. I haven't touched a car since the last time I was back in Michigan.
1: But you disagree? You don't think you're a, a bad driver?
0: I'm not as good a driver as I was. And I realize that other people are not going to accept a 100-year-old woman behind the wheel. So I don't blame them if they don't want to ride with me. But they don't know that I'm a better driver, I've been told, by most teenagers and 20, 20 to 30-year-olds who drive too fast and too carelessly. And so I have that comfort that I know I'm a good driver even though nobody will let me drive anymore. I was always a careful driver. I started driving when I was 14, and this was back in Michigan, when we could get a driver's license at age 14. And shortly after I learned how to drive, they changed the law to 16. So here I was, sitting and weeping because I couldn't drive because the law had been changed. But after I got to be 16, it was clear going for the rest of the way.
1: So you've been here about five months as you say, and your life clearly has changed in an environment like this. What what has been the biggest change for you? What was the thing you've most had to get used to?
0: Not having any independence, not having my car. When I was living alone and I had my car, I could go to the doctor by myself, I could get my groceries, I could go to the library. Anytime I want to do something now, I have to be taken there. There's bus service here, but good grief. You have to sign up for the bus, and then you have to be on time for the bus, and maybe there's a dozen other people on the bus, and they go to all different places. And it's so time-consuming and arrangement-consuming that uh, for my physical therapy now, I'm so glad that I can walk. And it's if I walk briskly, it's just a 15-minute walk, and I think it's a good part of my exercise. They don't like me doing it by myself because they think I might fall. But I've been walking for years with my walking sticks and now with the walker.
1: The fact that you've been working with Olga, your mobility has improved.
0: Yes, her, her teaching was very good and very nice. She was very courteous and she was a wonderful friend. And it was a, a, just a nice thing for me to be doing. And, of course, I've just finished the physical therapy course that was, uh, I think, 14 lessons long that I, I was able to walk to the hospital, the 15-minute walk. And uh, the only problem there was that if it rained, I would have a problem. So I was all prepared with my long raincoat and everything preparatory to walking on a rainy day, but not a, not a rainy day has happened yet. So I've been able to walk by myself.
1: Now, I mentioned at the start that you are 100 years old. You're about 100 years and six months, give or take a few days. Yeah. Do you get asked a lot, how do you get to 100 and remain so clearly active and healthy as you are?
0: Well, shall I get into my basic way of doing it?
1: I know you have a theory on this, so (laughs) let's have it.
0: The first thing I want to talk about and you'll probably laugh but I say choose your parents and of course you can't do that but once you get your parents use them I mean your parents love you presumably and try to do what they teach you and that's where I was so lucky because my mother was a school teacher she went to teaching a great school right out of high school after a, a summer at uh, college. And she was a wonderful teacher for the kids. And then she met my father, who was unlucky on his schooling. His father let him go to, through school through the third grade. But he was born with a brilliant mind, and he was so eager to learn. That when I was growing up, he took care of everything in the house that had to do with the electrical problems, the plumbing problems, carpentering problems. He had somehow learned how to do all those things by watching people do them. And so I falsely assumed that all all men did all those things.
1: And when you say uh, choose your parents carefully, a, a oh, big, a big g- part of that is the genetics.
0: Yeah. If you choose the right parents, they have the right genetics. I'm lucky on my mother's side there because she came from a family with four sisters who all lived into their 90s. My mother was 92 when she died. Another sister was 94 and the two others in the 90s somewhere. I forget where.
1: So it's probably fair to say, and we've talked about this on the podcast in recent episodes, that you... And certainly the women in your family have the longevity gene. Yeah. And you have discovered a lot of this about your ancestors because you've done a lot of research. In fact, you've written your own life story. Yes. You, you wrote a book about, what was it, about 20 years ago you decided to do the research and finally put pen to paper to write a, a very lengthy account of your ancestors.
0: Well, the reason I came to write the story was that my mother wanted to do it as a school teacher. Uh, and she was a very capable writer. She intended to write the story, but somehow luck ran out for her and she didn't have the energy to do it. And she would be coming home to us weekends for a long time and every time I would, when she would be her nap, when she'd wake up, I'd be there and we'd talk and I'd say that I was so interested in the past and she told all these stories and she said, will you promise to write? about these stories when I'm gone and I said yes mom of course I'll promise and so I was tied I I didn't want to break any promise to her because she was such a wonderful mother so after she died why she might even have been still living when I started and I had all these wonderful pictures that she had taken of us as kids and pictures from her ancestors so It was nice to have a mother to be my booster.
1: And it is a a very detailed book. The photography is, is quite amazing, the pictures you've managed to find. How many generations did you go back?
0: Well, just grandparents on both sides that I really knew. I knew all my grandparents until they died because they lived nearby.
1: And it must, apart from relying on your memory, a considerable amount of research has clearly gone into this book, to, to get all the facts and the dates and the stories.
0: My mother was a saver, and she saved a lot of things. She'd go to school programs, and she'd bring home the program, and she would put, keep it in a treasure spot somewhere. We had all kinds of stuff to read about and look back on and remember, all kinds of band concerts to report about and 4-H club work and all those things. There were all these records there for, for me to look at and select the pictures and put it together. And then another lucky break was that I met a girl who had her Ph.D. from Michigan State. We were, both, we were both Michigan Staters, and that made us friends, and we were both Audubon members. and We were friends there, and she became such a good friend that she said, you write it and I'll type it on the computer for you. I had not had typing in high school, and that was such a failure because anything I wrote either was longhand or I would sit there and struggle on the computer. But I ended up doing most of it on the computer right at home every morning. I'd sit down, and, and then she would take it, and I think she must have retyped it all because everything came out without too many mistakes, And she appreciated the story herself and enjoyed it. So how could I have been any luckier?
1: And a big part of you doing this was uh, not only to fulfill your mother's wishes, but to leave something for future generations and to leave the story so that your children, their children, and future generations can perhaps learn from what you've gone through, and especially your health experiences.
0: Yeah, another thing is that there's an Iron County Museum that my mother got very interested in. And of course I did too. And I volunteered to work there when when I was up there summers. And I spent 25 years helping in the museum, uh, in the gift shop. And my mother supplied many things from our home for the museum, for the exhibits. So there are probably a dozen of exhibits that my mother contributed from our living and I got some other things from the rest of the family and one. well I wrote this in the book maybe you remember reading it one uh, 4th of July when my husband and I were home in Iron River we were walking down Main Street and the museum had put up an exhibit in the penny store window and here was my dress that I had made in my first year of 4-H work on a nice stand there And another dress that I had made in later years. And I was so surprised and pleased to find that the museum valued our contributions enough to put them up on a 4th of July exhibit.
1: (laughs) Once you had finished the book and you'd gone through all of these memories and you got it down there in, in print... Was there something about your life or perhaps looking at the experiences of of people from multiple generations that surprised you as you look back and you could see the big picture, you could see everything? Was there a moment when you thought, ah, yes, that kind of makes sense to me now?
0: Yeah. When people ask me and I want a short answer to how come I'm so old, I say just plain luck. And so much of it seems to be that way because... The the second part here that I want to emphasize as being important is choosing a purpose in life. And I was just a kid. I had no particular purpose. I just played with my brother, and we swam and did all this stuff. But then when I was about six or seven years old, we learned about the Michigan State College Extension Service. And the college, of course, is down at Lansing, 500 miles away. So we couldn't go there easily and do things, but the college sets up places throughout the state using federal, state, and local funds to stock the state with people who are trained and can teach. And so my mother found out about, there was an Upper Peninsula development um, place where they did research And that was the headquarters for the UP. I I call it, I always say the UP, and somebody said one day, what's the UP? (laughs) So it's the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and there are 13 counties there, and everyone now is served by someone from the uh, Extension Service down there at Michigan State. And our county had three workers at one time, one for the children, for the 4-H kids, one for the women's clubs, and one to advise farmers. And my mother made an effort to get to know these people personally, and they were happy to know my mother because she could help them get the groups together for the 4-H club and for the home extension group. And, and for instance, when we wanted to build a chicken coop for chickens, we went to the expert and got his advice in the floor plan for the chicken coop. <laughs> So that was the lucky thing that happened for us, that we got acquainted with what Michigan State was doing for everybody in Michigan. Not every state is that lucky, and not every county is as lucky as ours. Ours was Iron County, and the people there took to it right away and had some of the best 4-H leaders and best 4-H students, best 4-H winners in the peninsula.
1: And you say, have a purpose in life. What Well, from
0: from that connection with the university, I immediately got a remote purpose in life because the woman who was the top woman in the Upper Peninsula who looked over 4-H clubs and helped the leaders throughout the whole 15 or 13 counties, they were always such attractive women and so capable. And I thought, oh my! Wouldn't it be nice to have an extension job and end up like that, and have that to travel around the not only the peninsula but travel around the country, and the fact that my mother encouraged college. College was uh, was a given from the time we were three or four years old. She taught college. And my brother didn't take to it, but I did. I thought, oh, what a glamorous life that's going to be. My idea was so false. I was a kid, and I thought college kids were so lucky they could go party all the time, you know. Anyway, that helped to get me a, a purpose in life, to go to college. It never I never lost that goal. When I was ready, we both went to college. And of course, that opened a lot more possibilities.
1: And so what did you do with the rest of your life? What was the main well, purpose in, in your there career? There were many,
0: many openings for women. I remember that some girls in college were in the in the science department and I thought, how did they get in there? How did, What kind of a recommendation did they have to have to take a science course or any other course that was man-oriented? So when I was ready to go. The only things open were uh, home economics, teaching, maybe being a nurse. And so I thought lawyer would be a glamorous career, but of course they wouldn't accept lawyer students then.
1: And we're talking about the 1930s now.
0: Yeah. Of course, we didn't have money to to go to college on my parents' pocketbook. So it was necessary for us to do well enough in 4-H to get a scholarship, and we both did that. We both stayed in 4-H clubs, did our best, won prizes, and finally, uh, when, I was, when we were about 15, we both got college scholarships. Mine was on clothing. I had been in it for five, six, six or seven years, I forget, <laughs> and did mo- sewed most of my own clothes during those years. And my brother took poultry as his project to win a scholarship. And so you
1: successfully us, made it through college. Yeah. What was next for you?
0: And my bro- we both um, were graduated with, with high honor. And, of course, that was important to our futures too. We had to work hard to keep our scholarships. If we didn't get a B average or better, they would drop the scholarship. So that, was, that gave us a purpose. We had to work. And we, we did good records, both of us. And again, I was the lucky one because um, in 1937, when, when we were graduated, uh, teachers were needed everywhere. A teacher could get a job and a home ec teacher could get a job. And there was a superintendent who came, well, several superintendents came to the college, talked to the deeds there to ask for recommendations for a teacher. I was recommended for a job that was 15 miles from my home in the UP. What could have been better? I'd be back in my home territory, I could see my parents, my family every weekend if I wanted to, and the pay was good, it was $1,400 a year. But my brother didn't have any luck at all as a forester, he had top honors too, graduating but there were absolutely no jobs open to foresters in in 1937. And so uh, I was the only one in the family making any money, so I helped him some, but of course I didn't have, you know, my checks had just started and I didn't have much to help him with. And finally he heard about a federal program that was doing some shelter belt projects, a work project thing to help people, he drove down to Indiana to talk to somebody there, and they gave him a job in the shelter belt in Kansas. And so that's how he got started in his job. And from that, he became an employee at Kansas State University and later from there to Michigan State University. So he ended up very successfully in his career, but it was an awful struggle. Because of his uh, his bum start and slow going. He didn't live anywhere nearly as long as I did. He, he he pushed himself so hard physically and worked so hard physically and had other troubles too. How, odd, how old was
1: he when he passed away?
0: He was 75 when he died.
1: But 75 for 25 years ago wasn't a bad age. Not
0: too bad, not too bad. Pretty average. But compare it to mine.
1: Compared with yours, well, you are remarkable. So let's continue with your life and your career and the purpose in your life that you've talked about. You managed to get a great education. You did well. You got a job very quickly. So where did you go from there?
0: Well, as I said earlier, my purpose was to be an extension worker someday. That was my ultimate goal. I thought that was a heavenly kind of a job. And looking at this woman who had the top job in the UP always beautifully dressed and highly educated and traveling all the time. That was my goal, and I thought, oh, an impossible goal.
1: Just explain for people who maybe don't know, what kind of job is that? What does that involve doing?
0: When I became that job for the UP, the the top job that I ended up with, I worked in conjunction with a man who is in charge of the farmers and the boys 4-H clubs, and I took care of the women's groups, women's uh, groups that were formed all over, local women formed groups, and it was my job to to take care of them. We did it mainly by having leader training meetings when we'd go from one county to the next, and I would work with women leaders who would then go home and teach somebody. It would be like a bunch of women sitting in a room talking about how to make an apron for a little girl or something like that. Anyway, those, those things, anything that you could teach to those groups was worked on by the university so that they would be teaching them, well, how to can. That was a very important thing. And one of the first things my mother benefited by was how to can all the food that we gathered from the garden and from the woods. And in those days, people were oven canning We found out, we better not do any oven canning. That's going to cause trouble. You might have an explosion. So very basic things like that got taught by these extension workers. So you were
1: teaching practical skills?
0: Well, very practical stuff. All of it was very practical. And the men would come around, and (laughs) my being in the poultry club enabled me to get in on these study sessions too. And I can remember... One day, having the poultry specialist from Lansing up there, we had, my brother had gathered a bunch of chickens and put them in pens around our yard, and all the kids in the 4-H club, in the 4-H club doing 4-H, came there, and the man from the college told us how to cull chickens, how to find out if they're still laying eggs, if they should be put in the cook pot. <laughs> we learned so many details like that, and... He got us each to hold a chicken and feel where the egg comes out to see if this hen is laying eggs yet. And there are ways to do that that they knew about that he taught us. Well, that's the way the whole system worked. The extension workers in each county would go to the clubs in each county that they had helped to farm and then teach them these lessons that they needed to
1: learn. So working in agriculture at that time, what was the quality of the food like that you ate?
0: They raised a lot of potatoes in Upper Michigan, and there wasn't much else that was a good, workable crop. And that's what the college was working on to get us to raise more variety of of food in our gardens. And so that's how, of course, my mother was always interested in looking for new things. That's how she found out about broccoli and Brussels sprouts and other things like that in the garden. They even, my mother and father, even tried raising peanuts. (laughs) (laughs) They found out it wasn't the right climate for them. And for years, we didn't have tomatoes because tomatoes didn't ripen up there. The summers were too short. But the experiment station in the UP at Chatham worked on the tomato crop and came up with this kind of seeds that were would have the tomatoes ripen in July. The whole peninsula blossomed into tomato growing, because previously the, tomato, the ripe tomatoes were in the stores. They weren't in our gardens. But when we got seeds that would grow tomatoes that would ripen in a short period of time, like by the end of July, everybody wanted to plant tomatoes. So that's, that's the way the whole system worked. And our place to live, was a two-acre plot that my grandpa gave to my folks to build their house. And it was two acres that my parents picked right on the lake shore. So it was always a heavenly place to be in the summertime.
1: And do you think by today's standards and what we understand about food that you had a healthy diet then in those days?
0: An exceedingly healthy diet. We had a cow all the time, sometimes two cows. My father would milk them. We'd have all the milk we wanted to drink. We had, well, of course, we loved the ice cream they could make. And, and of course, my mother and we kids belonged to the garden club, and we learned all about these nice things that you could have in the garden. So we,
1: did you eat mostly homegrown food then?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: And I'm curious then, considering your extraordinary longevity what was your daily eating routine like in those early days and indeed throughout your life was it three steady meals or did you snack between meals Uh, what did you do there
0: was always breakfast lunch and supper uh, supper was the word for dinner you know dinner dinner became the word when I was grown up but it was breakfast lunch and supper and when we were going to school most of our well, mornings were always probably oatmeal or something good, eggs. My mother always was part of the nutrition classes from the extension service, and she knew what to feed us. So we had a good breakfast, and then we'd go off to school and either have a packed lunch, or sometimes the school would have a lunch program. That wasn't very common for us, however.
1: What was in the packed lunch
0: Oh, sandwiches, peanut butter and jelly. Almost everybody had peanut butter and jelly. But anything that that they had on hand in home to make a good sandwich. My mother would make an egg sandwich sometimes, or if there was some leftover meat, it would be a meat sandwich, or bologna. Bologna was very common for sandwiches in those days. But they were always good lunches. and uh,
1: Homemade bread?
0: Yes. Yeah. Oh, my mother was the best baker. She was such a good cook, and she learned to bake, too, through the uh, college recipes and and their help. But this is funny. My brother would eat the bread all right, and he wouldn't complain, but he was so happy when he could get a 10-cent white loaf of bread from the A&P that was worthless as far as nutrition. But it was so easy to eat. He loved his A and P white bread.
1: A and
0: and P was the store. Got it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so he loved the this newfangled white bread, this processed bread that you could buy in a packet.
0: Yeah, and there were bakeries. Uh, very nice couple of nice bakeries in town that my folks patronized too, because they had they had deals going with. We'll bring you so many eggs and we'll get so much bread and payment, that type of going on. So we always had good food, always.
1: Did you eat sweets?
0: Uh, that's my big downfall. And, well, the whole family's downfall. And I don't think that I, as a child, was, was anywhere nearly as aware as I should have been of the danger of sugar. I just ate way too much
1: But you could argue it hasn't been your downfall.
0: I still have my teeth, but they've had an awful lot of work on them. (laughs) And I envy anybody who has a perfect set of teeth.
1: (laughs) That's just one of the dangers of sugar. Yeah. So did you maintain through your life that kind of dietary regime? I guess as you got older and processed food became more available and we tended to a society, eat less homegrown food. Is that the journey that you went on as well?
0: Uh, It was so varied for me. When I worked in Ironwood, I had an apartment and lived by myself right close to the office, which was in the post office building on the second floor. So I just had to walk half a block to get from my apartment to my place to eat. So I would normally go home to eat and it would be very simple food. I had a lot of soup for lunches and sandwiches for lunches. And when I went out to the different 4-H clubs to advise them and help them, they always had food there. They would always urge food on me. <laughs> so I was, I was always well fed. When I got into Marquette, where I traveled so much, I was on expense account. Well, I I had some expense account in the county, too, but in Marquette, when I traveled the 13 counties, I had expense money from from the university. So we always ate out then.
1: So do you think, and bearing in mind what you've said, do you think diet has played much of a role in you getting to 100?
0: I think diet played a big role. I think diet kept me... Pretty healthy as a little child, and some children just don't thrive like we did. But with all our garden stuff, our garden produce, our eggs, our milk, we always had plenty of food. And I tell people now that in my years, when I part of the time when I was working and some of those in between years, I had to go on a diet, and I would be constantly on a diet. To not get fat. So... W- were you
1: fat at any stage?
0: I wasn't exactly fat but I was so heavy that I felt gosh I've got to go on a diet and before I got married I took off 15 pounds. <laughs> Purposely I didn't want to be a fat bride. <laughs> <laughs> of course I wasn't fat but I was overweight. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yes so you've always had a, a healthy diet You've always had a a fairly simple diet by the sounds of things. You haven't been extravagant.
0: We never uh, ate in restaurants. That was too expensive. That lasted quite a while because this was all still depression years. And when I went to Alpha, my first year teaching, I had one section of boys for six weeks. This was a new thing, a novel thing. I traded with the shop teacher. He took my girls and taught them shop things, and I took his boys and taught them cooking and little mending things and stuff like that. Uh, It was interesting. There were, I think, about 15 boys in the class, and I asked them uh, what restaurants they liked, and they kind of responded, what restaurants? They hadn't been to restaurants to eat. They didn't know how to eat in a restaurant. So one of the field trips I had was to get the school bus to take my class and me to a restaurant in Iron River for them to see how you eat in a restaurant, how you place your order, what it's like. So that was a novel thing for them back in 1937. So it was was a big deal for them to get to know how to eat in a restaurant and do it right and not be embarrassed and how to treat the waitresses and that kind of stuff.
1: <laughs> now, of course, families eat out all the time. It's commonplace to go to a restaurant oh, for yes. some people oh, almost yes. every day. Do you think that's necessarily a good thing?
0: Well, it depends. If money is no matter, and if the parents are sensible enough to eat in restaurants that are good, and there are a lot of good restaurants that serve good food if you can afford it. But I don't know. I think uh, there's too much snacking, too much. Um,
1: did you snack between meals? Oh yeah, <laughs> always.
0: Most of the Swedish families, in my knowledge, did. And one aunt in particular, I remember her schedule was breakfast, uh, coffee, and something to eat with the coffee at ten o'clock.
1: A little pastry or something.
0: Yep, usually cake or pie. My aunt made a pie almost every day of her life.
1: What kind of pie?
0: Oh, apple, blueberry, raspberry, rhubarb. Our rhubarb patch was so enticing. We ate a lot of rhubarb, which was good for us. She then cooked meals for the school teachers at noon, so they would have a good meal at noon because they lived right close enough to the school, so the teachers could walk there and have a good meal. And she often served them pie dessert that she made and the the people loved her cooking and liked the little break from school at noon to come out and eat and go back.
1: Let's talk about your later years and your marriage. How did you meet your husband?
0: Oh, I met him when I went to Ironwood to do 4-H work, and his, his office was in the post office. He was a postal inspector. Our offices were both on the second floor of the post office, And every, not every day, but often, this young man would walk by my door down to his office at the end of the hall. And so after a while, I thought, I'll just go and say welcome to him. He's new here. So I went down and told him who I was and welcomed him. And he said, well, I beat you here. I've been here longer than you have. But he had traveled so much that I hadn't even seen him. Anyway, he invited me out, I think that very evening, we went to the hotel and had a cocktail together and visited and found out that we had an awful lot in common, that we both were educated. He was a Northwestern graduate, which is a high-class school, you know, it's (laughs) considered higher class than Michigan State. (laughs) So um, for a couple of years, we just Did a lot of things together. Went on picnics together on Lake Superior shore, and went fishing together on on Lake Superior with some friends, and had a wonderful time together. And he loved the North Woods. Then he got promoted to Chicago to be a depredation worker, and he was there when the war broke out, and uh, so we had been. Well, of course, I I forgot to say I took him home to Iron River and and we spent several weekends with my folks, so we were very close. Uh, But he had said on our first date he wasn't going to get married, so he said, don't get any ideas. So, of course, I worked hard not to get any ideas, but to me, he was was ideal. (laughs) (laughs) And when he went to Chicago, the war broke out, and postal people were desperately needed by the Army to handle the mail for the soldiers. So he, went, he was sent to Washington and taken into the Army as a major. I mean, he didn't have to start as a, to go to boot camp or anything like that. But, of course, he had never been in any military thing. He didn't have any military experience. So they sent him to a school, adjutant general school, they called it, in Washington, to learn all the stuff, the protocol of the Army and to get his uniform and all this stuff. And then his job throughout the war was to handle the mail for the soldiers. He set up a place in uh, San Francisco for the mail to go to the Pacific, in New York for it to go to the other, to go east. And then he had an office in London. And one of the uh, highlights of his time in London One of the things he had to do one day, he was in charge of an office with several other guys there, but somebody told him from above that they had a job for him to do. He was to escort the Queen on a tour, a facility that was being run by English women handling our mail, America's mail. This was the Queen that he was to escort. It would have thrown most guys who didn't wouldn't have the polish that you need to escort a queen. But Dean had the polish innately. I mean, he was a very polished, nice person who could meet others very well and, and met with women easily and that kind of stuff.
1: So he came back from serving, well, and had he changed his mind about getting married?
0: We hadn't even mentioned getting married before he went overseas. But it was always in the background because we were very, very close and suited to one another. But the funny thing that happened, once he got to England, I didn't hear a word from him. And I waited and waited and I didn't get any mail. And I thought, I wonder what's happening to him. And I wrote him, I think I wrote him two letters and I didn't get any answer. So I thought, well, He's just carrying out his statement he was never going to get married, and I just better remember that. And so I, I just decided I'm not going to dwell on him anymore. And all of a sudden, one day when I went to my office in the basement of the courthouse in Marquette, there was a letter on my desk from Dean. And I thought, well, for heaven's sake, what on earth can this be? So I opened it right away, and he said, oh, This is my last day in the Army. He said, I will be in Marquette on postal work on such and such a date, and I would like to see you. And I thought, What's, what, what gives? You know, I didn't have any hope then that he was even remembering me because he had forgotten me for these four years. So I wrote back and I said, well, I have a car and I can meet you at the train because it comes in at Nagani, an overnight train from Chicago. So that's what I did. I drove down to the train and met him, and he came off the train. And the first thought I had, he's skinny as a rail. He's like a toothpick. He had lost so much weight when he was gone. He was very tall and very slim, not skinny looking, but just tall. Anyway, he got in the car, and we went home, and, and it was morning. The train came in real early, so we had to have breakfast when we got home. And I went out to the kitchen to start making the breakfast and he came and got me and he took me by the hand and pulled me back to the bedroom and sat me down on the bed and said will you marry me
1: did you fall off the bed with shock <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> there was no hesitation on my part and I'm sure it was the right decision
1: well you were married for a long time were not you
0: 58 years And that's a good way to uh, live a long time. That's to keep your marriage for a long time.
1: To have a happy, long relationship.
0: Yep. The longer, the better. So I wrote down that my marriage was 58 years long. And then he ended up with with a cancer. The cancer didn't kill him, but a stroke did. But he was 95.
1: And you wrote in your book in quite a lot of detail about his health problems and in later life. And I'm quite struck by what a remarkable memory you have. You have a a huge ability to recall detail. Oh, Has that always been an ability of yours? Or does it come easily?
0: Uh, It came easily a lot because of the pictures and a lot because of, uh, well, when John was little, One of his favorite things was to say, tell me more stories when you were a little girl, Mama, I like to hear that. And so he got me to repeat things that I would recall from goodness knows where. And that's how I dug up from my memory and from my parents' memories things to tell him when he was little. He wanted more and more stories about when I was little.
1: Just going back to your husband, you say he passed away, he had a cancer, and he had a a stroke. Mm -hmm. What has life been like for you since your husband's passing?
0: Oh, of course I miss him dreadfully. He was such a genuine, good, loving person. And his mother was blind, or almost so, and she lived with us a lot, which was a strain to have her. But he took such good care of her, and all his life, from the time he was in high school, he supported his parents. So he was good from the ground up, you know, thoughtful and when my mother got sick, he would be the one who would walk her to the bathroom if she had to go and just kind loving things. Perfect gentleman.
1: And how many years now is it since he passed away?
0: He died in 04.
1: 13 years. And how have you adapted to life without him?
0: Oh, it's not easy. <laughs> But I'm so used to it now that uh, it's, it's a long time since he died and, and I certainly miss him and I, I wish I could see him again.
1: Life has been obviously different for you, but you've, you've continued. Here you are today, 100 years old, and still agile, still fit, still getting around yourself and still, I think, with a purpose in life. Well, Do you feel like that?
0: Um. Uh, Sometime back, after Dean had died, I thought, well, I'm not dead now and there's still a lot of life to live and I think I, I might as well write about growing old. So I started my third book. My second book was about our marriage and all that stuff.
1: So you're writing a book about growing old. What inspired you to do that?
0: Just that life went on and I had something to do and I liked to write and I had written the first two chapters I didn't want to forget the third third part, I just wanted to write that. It isn't published, it's typewritten. I mean, it's like my blue book that I brought today, only scrappier, it's just thrown together because it's not ready for anybody else to read.
1: And what are the main points that you want to make in this book about getting old? We understand your philosophy about... Life and having a purpose in life and yeah. having a, a long, well, fruitful relationship. But uh, in, in terms of getting old, what are your key thoughts?
0: I I still think that I don't have enough of a purpose in life. That there's not enough good in life anymore to write about, really.
1: You feel that you don't have as much purpose as you once had, and, and you My would like. My
0: purpose now is to live until I die, to keep eating until I don't pass out and John tells me my goal should be to live to be a, a 120 because he saw somebody on the TV who did live that long and was interviewed and I said no if I, if life is going to continue to as it is I don't want to live that long I don't want to live anymore I just as soon pass out now and be gone I don't think life has much worth or value for me except for some very dear friends, not too many. It takes a long time to get friends that are really like family and I have some of them and of course I have John and Joan and Jennifer but that's all the family I have.
1: What's your daily routine like now?
0: Well I get up at 6:30 and take my thyroid pill because I have to have it so much time before breakfast Then I get myself dressed and that's always a chore (laughs) to wear what to wear here you know I have to give some thought to that because some of the women have scads and scads and scads of clothes and some come like at my table where I eat a couple of the girls wear a different one almost every day I wonder how on where on earth do they put them in the closets here there isn't room but I don't But question. it's a bit of a
1: fashion parade, is it? Yeah, yeah. So you got to keep up with the, the <laughs> girl next door.
0: <laughs> well, my closet is as full as it's going to be. Uh, there, I'll have to get another closet if I'm going to have that many clothes. Breakfast is at 8, lunch at 12, dinner at 5, and you can get to the door at five minutes to eight for breakfast. I try to get there then because then you get better service and quicker service. Quarter to 12, the door's open for you to get in and you can order from the menu. They have a choice. of, But their noon meal and their evening meal, you could exchange them because they're the same pattern, both of them. And both the noon meal and the evening meal puts emphasis on dessert.
1: Do you get enough exercise here?
0: No. They don't provide enough exercise. That's why I went to the physical therapy for, I think it was 15 days. I've just finished that. And I'm now going to go to, uh, I don't know what they call it. It's It's the same gym offering machinery, work with the machines. So they'll have the bicycle kind of things and others. And the cost is $144, which I think is, I mean, I can afford it, but I grew up being so careful with money, I can't spend it now. I can't throw it around on stuff. Mm. And so many of the people here, I think, have quite a bit of money. And their families will come and take them out to a fancy place for dinner some night. Even though they've paid for their dinner here, (laughs) the families will take them out to a dinner. Now, that's not the kind of thing I do. I mean, I can't see throwing away money when the food is there if I want to eat it and it's nutritious food, and it's decent. It's not fancy, except the desserts, boy. you, Like I say, the desserts are are ruining. If it's a place to keep the elderly healthy and happy, they shouldn't have a, a menu like that. Because if you don't like the cake, which is a really big piece of cake with frosting, and you can have a dish of ice cream to go with it, and a lot of them do, they are fat.
1: Well, you're certainly not fat.
0: No, I'm not.
1: And you're 100 years old and you're still watching what you eat. <laughs> I started by saying that you were working with Olga and that she had been helping you with your mobility. Yeah, she What, she what charged kind of things too. did you do with her? What, what sort of exercises did you do?
0: Uh, well, she, ha- she liked to have me ride the bicycle She didn't have to get involved with that because I'd get there and that's what I'd start doing and I'd do it for a certain number of minutes that I felt I could stand. It was boring, but I did it.
1: This is a stationary bike.
0: And then I walked around the track on the second floor of the gym and if you walked the track five times around and around and around, it was a half a mile. So then... um, And you're
1: doing this when you're 99 years old.
0: yeah. All the time I've been here in Irvine, I've been working at the gym with the kids, if I'm with them or if they come and get me.
1: Did it make you feel better?
0: Well, I don't think I'd have the figure I have if I hadn't done this kind of thing. Because I went through a period when I was pretty heavy and I watched my weight and was on a diet. So I, I weighed 94 pounds at one time when I after my first operation, when I came out here, Joan said I weighed 94 pounds and I was going to have to put on some weight. I'm 106 now. She wants me up to 110. <laughs> <laughs> so I eat not because I enjoy the food so much. The food is good, but it's the same same routine day after day. The same recipes come back day after day. You know, it's it's the desserts are always exciting to me because I did like sugar stuff. But I mostly have ice cream if I don't want the cake with all the frosting so I can have ice cream, which also is nutritious and, and will help me get up to 110.
1: Is it fair to say that one of your biggest frustrations is your lack of independence?
0: Yeah, the feeling I get from everybody that I'm not capable of being any independent anymore. Even here, they don't want me to walk alone because I might fall.
1: Do you understand why people are concerned? When you were younger, maybe you would have said about an older person, well, no, be careful. I don't want you to fall. And now you're in that position, but you think, I'm not going to fall.
0: (laughs) I think I always understood older people better than people seem to understand me. I don't feel like like I fit in this group.
1: What do you say to people, if they ask, what it's like to be 100 years old?
0: The only answer I can think of readily and quickly is that I've just been extremely lucky. I had such good parents. I had such a nice brother to grow up with. I was so lucky in my careers, I didn't have to look for a job like the young people have to look for jobs now. Luck
1: is the word. How important is sleep to you?
0: Sleep? Pretty important. I guess every, everything you read says you should get 9 to 10 hours a night. And that's what I try to do. But last night, for some reason, I couldn't sleep. and I don't know, I was uh, kind of mixed up in my mind. I wasn't sure where I was, and so much of the time I spent trying to figure out where my bathroom was and all that. <laughs> I
1: think we all have nights like that. It's clear from talking to you today that you have a very active mind. there's a lot going on in there, oh, and maybe that stops you from sleeping sometimes. yeah, why did you want to do this interview with me today?
0: I didn't want to particularly i was <laughs> right. I was asked by Olga if I would
1: ah, I was curious just to know why you very kindly agreed to do it because some people. Because you've got some notes and you're well prepared. Some people feel as if they have something to say, especially as they get older. They want to share their story. Is there, well, a sense that, is there a sense that you want to share your story?
0: It's interesting to me now that it was 84 when I started writing this book that I brought along today. I still like to pick it up and read it to remind me of the good times. And so I don't know. I thought if this is a help, I don't know, I just thought it would be interesting, another thing to do. They're always thinking of things for us to do over there, and so many of them I don't go for easily. There's so many card games and puzzle games, and I like the volleyball, the balloon volleyball. Do you know what that's like? I don't, tell me. Well, you play volleyball with a blown-up balloon. balloon. Yeah. And it's really Sounds like funny, a lot of fun. as fun as can be, but we only do it about once a week. And we have chair exercise. And they encourage us to go for walks, but not alone.
1: Final question. What would you say to people? A big part of why I do this is that there is a lot of interest in human longevity and what we can do to achieve a great age, health span, as opposed to lifespan, where you achieve a significant age and you're still healthy and you can still do what you want to do you have you've achieved it you're 100 years old and you're still active what would you say to those of younger generations that aspire to live a very long life do you feel a sense of achievement getting to 100
0: not really i think there are so many things that i could have done if I had tried harder, it seemed to me that things came too easily for me. I mean, I fell into one thing after another. I don't think I'm a, a very outstanding person in any way. I mean, the being a hundred is, is fine and a nice talking point. but so what?
1: <laughs> but you had a good life. You yeah. achieved yeah. a lot professionally. You had, as you have explained, you had a long and had a good, good wife, relationship. I had good
0: parents, a good brother,
1: and you've had good health yourself,
0: and pretty good health. A couple of bumps.
1: What more is there to have?
0: I think from now on, it's mostly going to be bad.
1: <laughs> oh, I hope not. <laughs> Are there still things that you look forward to doing? Do you plan ahead? Is there always something on the horizon that you're Aiming
0: for Oh, well, keeping in touch with my friends back home is one thing that I'm continuing to do. Right now, well, I have one friend, Allie, who was a friend for 30 years or more, and we were so close in Grand Rapids in the same groups and same university and everything. When we went different ways, and they even went to Florida with us and got a condo with, with us there, so we were two families very, very close. But when we parted, they went to Lansing to live and we went to Upper Michigan to live. We decided we'd still exchange gifts. So Allie and I did that at Christmas, and her birthday's November, mine October. So we continued birthday gifts and Christmas gifts. <laughs> and for a couple of times it was satisfying, but then it got to be a chore. And so I said once to Allie, "Let's let's just do it for birthday now, and uh, not worry about it." And she has an easy way out because she sends me the set of Reader's Digest books for the elderly now for for people who need large print, which I don't really need. But anyway, every every few months I get a packet of that has two books in it, and I love to read, and I love the books that come. She's got it easy. All she has to do is send the money to the company, and they take care of sending it. <laughs> I have to think of fancy things to every, every birthday. So I'm working on her birthday gift right now, and that's one thing I'm doing over here. They spend a lot of time with the craft class, and they're very simple things and so easy to do. And one is a sun catcher. Do you know what a sun catcher is? I don't. This is a plastic thing. It's a circle thing to hang up that's marked with off sections. And she has a bunch of colored bottles on the table for us to use. So we go there and we get one of these sun catchers and squirt the color in where we want it. And mine turned out to be really beautiful, in fact. So pretty, I didn't want to give it away. So I'm making one for Allie now for her next year's November birthday. I've got that all taken care of.
1: So you do have <laughs> stuff a to do. That's the kind of
0: simple thing that occupies me now.
1: Excellent. Look, on that note, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Edith. It's
0: been wonderful to talk to you and recover these things in my mind. And now I can go on for another hundred years, maybe.
1: <laughs> that sounds excellent to me. I'll see you at the party. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Edith. Flexbeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Ruud.
0: Whenever you put the Flexbeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared light penetrate her skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time.
1: Recharge Health is offering Lama podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code Lama at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.